what happens when you find yourself living in an ever-changing world, culture. And you think about the world in which we live in, and you think about how rapidly things are changing, and then think about how are things changing. Things are changing in a lot of ways, but primarily how are things changing. The, the fact that, that we're consumed, everything in our, our culture today is, is, is sort of immersed around this issue of co- comfort and convenience and uh, all of the technology and everything that uh, barrages us all the time is all predicated on it's going to make your life easier. It's going to, you know, solve these uh, problems. That, and here's the thing, that, that's going to solve problems that we didn't even know were problems. That a generation ago, that was just normal life. But now it's a problem that needs to be solved. And, you know, you think about how just about everything that we have can, is controlled by remote control. Uh, me and somebody, I don't even remember who it was, we were laughing about... Um, Last week, we were laughing about uh, how, you know, my young kids can't, they can't even imagine uh, a television without a remote control. And just the fact of me trying to explain to them that I'd have to get up and turn the rabbit ears, you know, and I had a tinfoil on them, and, you know, and, and then if, if I wanted to watch a Saints game, I had to go to my friend's house because they had a big tower. And then you'd have to turn it, and I'd open the window and go, no, no, go the other way, back, 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 back. You know, and, and then and it always, the signal comes in when somebody was holding it, and so then you'd always say, just stay there. And then the guy out there is like, I'm not staying here. I want to watch. You know, but they just don't comprehend that. I mean, we have... Uh, you know, just drive up windows and online ordering. In other words, we, you know, we, we can get anything we want as convenient, as fast as we want with, with little or no effort whatsoever. All of our, our preferences are preloaded into everything that we do. So all of our media and all of our music and all, you know, is, you know, we listen to music. I mean, you, just think about the, the fact of, you know, like, I can remember being amazed that I had rewind. You understand? Like, I would listen to the radio for hours and waiting for my favorite song to be played. Now you just have a playlist. You don't, you don't listen to anything you don't want to listen to. You know, we'd, I'd get up early in the morning to watch uh, cartoons. You can watch cartoons 24 hours a day anytime you want to, you know, it doesn't, you know, and I'd be bummed out if I missed Gilligan's Island or something, you know, so, but there's no, now you can just have anything you want, any way you want, customized around you, all your information, all your likes, everything's already just, and you don't have to do anything, it does it for you. It's all, we don't have to be adaptable in any way because everything is built to adapt to us. And, and you think about how far it's gotten. I mean, we don't have to even take responsibility for any of our decisions or our actions. It's bizarre that, you know, we live in a culture where if a natural disaster comes, it's the government's responsibility to fix your problems. Like, if, 
if a pandemic comes, it's the government's responsibility to, you know, like these are, these are things that, you know, previous generations would just deal with. They would just handle it. They would, they would never expect someone else to take responsibility for that. But now if something happens, if some, look, you borrow money, you can't pay it back. It's the government's responsibility to just forget it that it ever happened. I mean, think about how bizarre this is. And so what is the consequence of it? You see, we, and, and you can't, I'm not pointing the finger because it's, it's all of us in the room, but there's nobody that's not affected by this. We are so pain averse, it's ridiculous. And you can go to a, a pharmacy 24 hours a day and get anything you want, to take away any ailment or pain or ache or anything you could dream of. The idea that you would just deal with it is unheard of to most people. That if anything is not right, the first thought people think is, just give me a pill or give me an ointment or give me a shot or give me to make it go away. And so what is the result of all of this? What happens? Because do I really care about any of the things I just talked about? No, I really don't care. Because it, it doesn't change anything, what your remote controls or what, I mean, you know, see what I mean? I don't care about any of that. But here's what I do care about. Is that the consequence of all of that is, is that now we live in this world predicated on comfort and ease. And what's happened is we've become morally weak. Because when you live an easy life, there is a spiritual consequence. And I can assure you that you have never in a million years thought this passage that almost every one of you in the room knows inside and out teaches us this very lesson. You see, the thing is, is that the right thing is almost always the hard thing. Now, why is that? See, we don't want it to be that way. But why is it that the right thing is almost always the hard thing? The right way is always the hard way. And the wrong way is always the easy way. Now, you think about it. Well, First of all, that should make perfect sense to us because the God of this world wants you to do the wrong thing. So there's going to be a system in place that's going to make the wrong thing the easy thing that's going to lure people into doing that. But then you think further and you say, now hold on a minute. There's a sovereign God who rules over everything who for some reason allows the God of this world to let... easy thing be the wrong thing wonder why that is I wonder why that is here's a, here's a principle for us in God's economy the things he cares about character and faith development they require struggle and patience there's no shortcut there's no remote control there's no customized uh, way to get there there's no 
uh, you know, there's no preloaded easy way. There's no, nobody gets a pass. Nobody, there, we all have to go the same way. It looks different. It looks unique to all of us, but we all have to go the same way. The rules apply to all of us. The way it works for me is the way it works for you. And here's the thing about God. He hasn't adjusted his character or his nature or his ways of doing things. He doesn't adjust them according to the culture. He stays the same that he's always been, and the culture just has to smash up against it, which is what we see happening today. So throughout all of human history, in every culture that's ever existed, God has one character development tool that he's always used effectively, and that is desperation. When you read the Bible, that's what you find over and over and over and over again. And I would say that it's one of the most prevalent, consistent messages that you hear in this church. And it's also one of the most distant and silent messages in the, in the church culture as a whole. You don't ever hear people talking about it. Which is one of the reasons why we don't have five services packed with people and probably never will. Because... We're just not, we don't exist to tickle people's ears. We, we're not going to say the things that people want to hear. And the truth is not something that most people want to hear. See, if we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, here's what we all see. And, and think about, think of the diversity of experience, the diversity of age, the diversity of, of, of the stories in this room. And yet it is 100% true that all of us that have been walking with God for any length of time, we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, and here's what we see. We see that there's no significant change. There's no substantive improvement. There's, no, there's been no shedding of sin that occurred in our lives apart from desperate moments, apart from suffering, apart from struggle, apart from trial, apart from pain. The most formative things that have happened in all of our lives are painful. They're painful. But there's something in us that wants to ignore this, that wants to just pretend that it's, it's not so. And the Bible just won't let us do that. So, for example, and God is so um, just obvious and forthright about this issue look at the way he says it in deuteronomy chapter 8 he says and you shall remember that the lord your god led you all the way those 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not so he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna now you think about that. God, the same God who parts the Red Sea, who, who performs all the miracles against Pharaoh in Egypt, the God who, who can do anything, this same God leads his people into the wilderness. And he doesn't just do something 
and, you know, try to hide the fact of what he's doing. He tells us. He said, no, I did that. I allowed you to hunger. I let you get hungry. I caused you to, to get stressed out and to get worried and to get hungry and to get in need. And, to, and the whole time, I had, I had manna in my back pocket. But I didn't deliver the manna until you got desperate. That's what he's saying. And to, do you know what that sounds like to modern ears? Cruel. That's what it sounds like. I'm going to try really hard not to just go bananas tonight on parenting because I just don't want to do that. It's not good for my blood pressure. But boy, does this apply. It is so true. That's why we, we have a parenting crisis in the church. It's because we've been so affected by the culture that we are oblivious as to how to raise kids. It's unreal. So, two things. I mean, there's... there's, there's People that are going through times of hunger, it, it doesn't seem loving that God has the solution to that the whole time, but yet he, he waits. But his plan is to make his people desperate because there's, there's a bigger purpose. And the bigger purpose is the things that God wants to create in us only come through these certain avenues. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from John chapter 11. And I, I just want to start by, at the end of that story, I don't think it's on your handout, but at the end of that story, uh, you, you know, Jesus, Jesus comes up to Bethany and he sees everything that's going on. He sees Mary and Martha weeping and Lazarus has died and all this is going on. And the Bible says Jesus wept. He wept. And then the Jews said, the Bible says in verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him? You see how he loved him, that he wept? And the assumption has always been that Jesus is grieving over Lazarus' death. Okay. But isn't that kind of strange when considering the things that that we're going to see in a minute that Jesus already said preemptively before he even came. But it makes human sense, so that's what we try to do. Um, of course, there would have been a natural assumption because there's people weeping all around the tomb. It's a, it's a time of great sadness. They're distraught. They've lost somebody that they love. So people just conclude, well, it would just make sense that Jesus would just fall in line with the way everyone else feels. A lot of uh, Bible scholars conclude that what Jesus was weeping about was the fact that uh, his hatred for death and how death was not a part of his original plan. And so the fact that he hates death, that, that he was weeping over death. Well, maybe. That's probably true, too. What if there's a, a different 
lesson in this text. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull it apart. Let's dissect it. Let's look at who knew what when, and let's just start pulling it apart. John 11, okay, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his, her, his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So what we're introduced to in the first couple of verses is the, the main characters of this story. We have Lazarus, we have Mary, we have Martha, and we have Jesus. We have four main characters. We have a brother, two sisters, and a Savior. So they're the, they're the main people. Now, where are these main people? Because it's important to think about this. Is everybody in the same place? No, because they sent word to Jesus. So we have Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They're all in Bethany where they live. But Jesus is not there. He's some distance away, at least a day's journey from there. Okay, now let's look at the other characters. You got that? You got a brother, two sisters, and a Savior. But that's not all the characters in the story. Now verse 4. So when Jesus heard from who? From the messengers, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now, I know what you want to focus on because what your mind goes to is this contrary statement of because Jesus loved them, he stayed two more days. And anytime something doesn't make any sense to you, you should, you know, build a campfire and camp out and, and, and sort that out. But there's more characters introduced now. Who's, who's now introduced into the story? The disciples. So now we've got a brother, two sisters, a Savior, and the disciples. And where are they? We've got a brother and two sisters in Bethany. We've got Jesus somewhere else, and we've got the disciples where? With Jesus. Okay? So I just want you to see where we're going. All right, so you got a, a blank on the left, a line in the middle, and a blank on the right. So the left-hand blank is Jesus and the disciples. The right-hand blank is Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. you got Jesus and the disciples on one side. You've got Lazarus, Mary, and Martha on the other side. And the line is the, represents this geographical separation, this barrier between these two groups. And it's important to understand that they're not together. Okay, verse 8. So the disciples say to him, so are we in Bethany? No, we're in this other place. The disciples say to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are, you, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But he who walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. All right. Let's go down the left side under Jesus and the disciples, and let's get all the information that we have about Jesus and the disciples straight, and then we'll do the other side, okay? All right, first of all, here's what Jesus and the disciples know. They know Lazarus was very sick. That's what they know. Okay, then they also know the sickness, believe the sickness would not end in death because Jesus said that. He said it's not unto death. They know that Jesus would be glorified in it because Jesus said that he would be glorified through it. They know that Jesus stayed put for two days. Now, I don't say, they don't understand all this, but I'm just, I just want us to lay out what they know. He stayed put for two days. They know that Jesus would be heading into trouble by going near Jerusalem, which is where they were, because they've already tried to stone him there. All right, the disciples were worried about Jesus going near Jerusalem. We know that. We know that after initially misunderstanding what Jesus meant by a sleep, the disciples finally understood when Jesus told them plainly that Lazarus was dead. That by a sleep, what the Lord meant was dead. Here's what else we know. We know that Jesus was glad about that because he said, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. We know that something would happen to aid their faith because Jesus said that you may believe that something good is going to come out of this. All right, that's what Jesus and the disciples know. Now, what, what do Lazarus, Mary, and Martha know? Well, they know that Lazarus is very sick. They're there in Bethany. They know that Jesus loved Lazarus. They know that they had sent a message to Jesus assuming that he would help. Notice the message they sent to Jesus wasn't hurry, time is of the essence, or any of that. They simply sent a message, the one whom you loved is sick. They assumed that that information would be enough to catapult Jesus into action. They know that if he got there in time, Jesus would save Lazarus. They had no doubt in their mind about that. It was no question. They weren't wondering if he would or if he could or anything like that. They were 100% certain that that would happen. 
They're there in Bethany and they were waiting. They're waiting. And Jesus had not come. And their brother is getting worse, getting worse, and getting worse. And the tension is getting greater and getting greater and getting greater. And then they're waiting. And they're waiting. And Jesus doesn't show. And Jesus doesn't come. And they're looking down the street. And they're going around the corner. And they're saying, has anybody heard? And do you know? And, and then Jesus still has not come. He's not there. He hasn't shown up. And the pressure is mounting. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. And then Lazarus was dead. See, they know that. Because when Jesus gets to Bethany, finally, where is Lazarus? In the bed? No, he's in the tomb, stinketh, remember? So he's already buried. So they know he's dead. And what else do they know? They know that dead people stay dead. And so that's why there's such mourning and weeping and sadness when Jesus finally shows up and sees all of this because that's what they know. Now they also know they were grieving and disappointed over Jesus' apparent insensitivity. Because why did he not come? Because we know that he would have, if, if, that he could do this, that he would do this. The assumption was that this would be taken care of, but yet he did not come, and therefore now our brother is not here. What things, they must have wondered, were more important than Lazarus? What were the things that, that, that took your attention and your mind off of what needed to happen? So you need to feel a little bit of the pressure. So if we were going to summarize... The two sides of this story. Okay, the first side would be the understanding that Jesus and the disciples knew everything would turn out for the good in a glorious way. Because Jesus knew that, obviously, because he knows everything, and he told the disciples that. But here's what's interesting. Who did Jesus not tell any of that information to? In other words, how did Jesus get word that Lazarus was sick? It's not that he, of course he already knew, but that's not, think of it in a human context. How did Jesus get word that Lazarus was sick? By messenger. So the messengers were standing there. So why didn't Jesus tell the messengers what he told the disciples? Why didn't he tell the disciples in front of the messengers, listen, don't worry about this. Something good's going to come out of this. So the messengers could have went home and told Mary and Martha, Jesus said, don't worry, something good's going to. He didn't do that. The only people that know that this is going to be okay is Jesus and the disciples. Now, what do they know on the other side? The summary of the other side. Well, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they knew only that they had sent a request to Jesus and that things had not turned out for good because Jesus did not come in time. In other words, Lazarus wasn't dead when the messengers came, right? So that means that Lazarus, we assume, probably knows 
that they've sent for Jesus because that's just human nature. If you were sitting by the bedside of your deathly ill loved one in this situation, what would you have been saying to them as you rubbed a, a, a cool compress on their forehead? Hang on, baby. Don't die. Hold on. It's going to be okay. We sent word to Jesus. Right? So the I am convinced that Lazarus knows that word has been sent to Jesus. So he knows that. Now, obviously, by the time we get to the end, well, he's no longer alive. But he knows that. And things didn't turn out for good. And it's because Jesus didn't come in time. So here's the question. Why is Jesus, like we could spend a lot of time talking about what I've already just laid out on these two sides of that line. But the question is, why is Jesus moved to tears over something that he could have so easily prevented. In other words, I just want you to understand, not only would it have been easy for Jesus to to prevent Lazarus from dying at all, because remember, we've already studied the passage where Jesus healed somebody without even going there. Remember that? So that's not the problem. But not only could he have kept Lazarus from dying... But even if he was going to allow Lazarus to die, it would have been so easy to just tell the messengers the same thing he told the disciples so that they wouldn't be panicking. They wouldn't be crying. There wouldn't be all this. And so think about that and then think about the reality that Jesus shows up, sees a group of people absolutely shattered and mourning and weeping and broken, and Jesus weeps. Why in the world is that happening? Clearly, God wants us to see something. That that doesn't make any sense. Why are you weeping over something you did on purpose? You intentionally, thoughtfully, strategically did it. And yet you weep. So when you look at this summary, you see this this thick black line in the middle. It, It represents not only a geographical barrier, but also a knowledge barrier. It's a barrier that separates knowledge because people on one side know things that people on the other side have no idea of. You see that? So they're not only geographically in two different places, but now we see there's a knowledge barrier where on one side, they're calm because they know it's going to work out for good. They don't understand how or why or what or anything, but they, they're completely calm. The, no, none of the disciples are panicking. None of them are crying. None of them are freaking out. But on the other side of that barrier, oh, there's pandemonium because this doesn't make any sense. They don't know. And see, here's what you got to understand. Lazarus and Mary and Martha can't see over the barrier to the other side where Jesus and the disciples are. They can't see over there. There's no way for them to know that. 
The reason they don't know is not because they missed something. They cannot see that. Like, it's not like, well, if they would have done this or done this, they would know that. No. There is no possible way that they could know that. That is important for you to understand. Jesus has a plan to raise Lazarus. He says he's going to do it, and he's going to reveal his glory, and he's going to use it to build their faith. But the people most affected by this situation have no idea. None. You feel the tension in all of this? So this is exactly how it works when we pray. Exactly. What you have is a literal physical picture of our prayer life or lack thereof. And if you struggle to pray, I'm going to explain the reason why you don't pray. See, you're on the you're over there on the side of the barrier and you can't see over. You don't know what's going on over there. And every time we pray, we 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 send our prayers over the the knowledge barrier that stands between our desperate situation and God's undisclosed plan. And you know what? We hate that. We hate it. We absolutely hate it. I feel like it's my my life calling to drive you crazy. That's my purpose for existence. To force you into uncomfortable situations that you don't make you think about things you don't want to think about. And understand things you don't want to understand. And purposely, there's so many times in my life where I could give you all the information, but I don't. I do it to my kids all the time. I do it to my wife all the time. I do it to Brian and Matt all the time. I learned it from the master. See, we, we, can't, we can't see over the barrier. So we're in the dark on our side. And so we just have to wait for God to show up somehow or do something somehow. And we don't understand how. And, we don't, and, and here's what happens. Is that the more you begin to focus on all the things you don't know, the more you, like any of you in the room, there's a bunch of you in the room, like I've walked through hell with you. Hell. Where your life was shattered into a million pieces. And I was there. 
and we walked through that together. And I told all of you the same exact thing in whatever way it fit into the context. And I put my arm around you and I said, listen, there's nothing I can say that's going to make the pain go away. There's nothing I can do that can change what we're in right now. But here's the one thing I want you to know. Please, God, listen to what I'm about to say. Focus on what you know. Not on what you don't. The devil wants you to think of all the things you don't know and all the things you can't figure out and all the things that don't make sense to you and all the and that is a nothing but a pit that's going to rob you of what God wants to do in this moment. And so the degree to which they, so here's what I know about everybody in this room. We got people in this room that have a good, healthy, solid, wonderful prayer life. We have people in this room that try to pray and struggle to pray and can't seem to get it together. And then we got people in this room that don't even pray at all. Or when you do pray, you just pray selfish prayers and you're, you're telling God what to do like he's a butler and you wonder why nothing ever works. We got people on all, but here's the thing. Where you are on that scale is 100% determined by the people in the room who pray like heck are the people who are not bothered by what they don't know. That's why they pray. I promise you that. And the people in the room that fixate on what they don't know and don't understand and how it can work out, you have a terrible time praying. And that's okay. God's going to fix it. You may not like it, but he'll, he'll fix it. He'll get you where you need to be. See, when we're, when, when we're in a situation, here's what we have to do. We have to believe in our heart. I don't know. People ask me all the time, like, I don't know. 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 Here's what I, I focus on what I know. Here's what I know. I can't see over the barrier, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt something's going on on the other side. That's what I know. I know that on the other side there's something happening. See, the, the, the shop's not closed. It's open for business. He's working. He's in the details. Something's going on over there. I don't know what it is. I don't know when it is. I don't know how it is. But I know something is happening. The workshop is open over there. That's what you got to know. And if you know that, you will pray. It will just be natural. You just, you'll just be drawn into just spending time with God because you know there's things happening. See, when you know there's something going on the other side, then you see that, that, that God is, in fact, doing what he promises to do. Because remember, the person who, who is focused on what they don't know, you cannot, you are a million miles away from God's doing what he promises to do. You know what you're thinking? You done got yourself in this pit, and now you're thinking, well, uh, you, you don't say, well, you know, God just lied. You don't say that. Here's what you say. That must not be what he meant. 
I must not understand this or this must or it, it must not apply to me because of what I've done because God's punishing me for things in the past because and then here we go down the condemnation trail or you know you got all these these ways of just derailing everything see what you need to understand is that God has these these pinnacle level things these these top tier purposes in our lives the further down the scale you go see up here there's a there's a little handful three four things that God is doing and they're all of us and they're his universal top priorities and the further down the scale you get like when you get down to the bottom the things at the bottom that God's doing in your life he's not even doing in my life and he's doing in my life he's not doing in your you know they're unique to us and our situation our circumstance and our but the further up that pyramid you get the more universal and sold out God is to those things and up there in that very top quadrant is God's central purpose in our lives is that we would surrender to this reality. He purposely puts you on the other side of that barrier. Notice what he said in Deuteronomy. I sent you out in the wilderness to test you. And what was the test? He even tells them to test you whether or not you would obey me or not. Trust me or not. Isn't that what he said? That's what he said. And I'm telling you that the whole Bible tells the same story. It's how God works. And here's what I want you to see tonight. That should make you super happy. Like you should be so thankful that God works this way. Because if you leave here tonight and your heart is still bent towards Okay, I accept that that's the way it is, but I don't like it. You're missing the whole point. Because he cried. See, the key is he cried. That's what I want you to see. When you see why he cried, all of a sudden you are like, oh my goodness. You are so amazing and good. So what if we ask ourselves the, the question? A question's like, okay, can I be in the position of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and be content knowing that God's on the other side where only my prayers can go, but I can't go? My prayers can go, but I can't see? Can I be content there? Can I be content having a God that, that I know loves me and I know is working, but that's all I know? Can I be content? Can I have confidence in him? See, Jesus told his disciples that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death. But he didn't tell the ones who would want to know that the most. The people who were... who See, the, think about now. The disciples, they're not even related to Lazarus. But the people whose literally their life is hanging by a thread... Their whole world is tangled up around this thing. Didn't tell them. 
And I want you to see that is the most beautiful thing. Jesus let Lazarus die. Let him die. His friends were waiting and waiting, suffering and suffering, watching helplessly as their brother suffered, got worse and worse and worse, and finally succumbed to death. Do you think Jesus knew what he was putting them through? Do you think he was aware of the pain that they were in and the agony that they were in and the distress that they were in and all the things that he was doing were causing? Do you think he knew that? Or do you think he was just oblivious to it? Was he punishing them for, because they had been disobedient or done bad things or whatever kind of wacky, legalistic, crazy ideas you got in your head? Then when Jesus finally arrives... Both sisters, not one, both sisters say to Jesus when they see him, Lord, if only you had been here. They both said that. If only you had been here. There's no question as to, as to the, where their hearts, the damage and the pain is, is focused. They, they feel the weight of being neglected by Jesus. And so it made a terrible situation a thousand times worse. See, they would have been sad if their brother had a massive heart attack and died instantly. But you know what made it worse? Or they would have been heartbroken if the messengers came back and said, sorry, we couldn't find him. They would have still been heartbroken. But what made it unbearably bad is that the messengers talked to Jesus. Jesus knew the situation, and he still didn't come. So it's, it's magnified infinitely greater. The pain is, if the pain was a ten, now it's a thousand. You could have saved him, and you didn't. Think about it. How do you feel about that? Does, is Jesus aware of that? Of course he is. So this crying, when does Jesus cry? At what point in this story does he cry? He's, he's going to Bethany. He doesn't cry in the two days he's, he stays near Jerusalem. No, he doesn't cry then. Then as he's going to Bethany and he knows that Lazarus is dead, he feels the pain, he knows that there's suffering, he knows all this is going on, but he doesn't cry then. He specifically cries at a specific time. It was when he finally arrived and faced their grief and saw their disappointment on their faces that Jesus wept. See, the Bible even tells us down in verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came. So it's when he saw and the Jews who came with her weeping. He groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Let me, let me just explain this to you. we got to hurry, okay? This is what we do. We spend a lot of time thinking about one side of the coin. We spend a lot of time thinking about what God does. What does God do? How does God act? What is, and that's good. And, we, we, and we're, we're intrigued by that. And we're enthralled by that. And we want to know about that. And a lot of it is motivated by selfishness because we think it's going to help us. It's going to give us an edge. It's going to give us an angle. That's why we, we want that. 
But do we ever think about when God does what he does, how does God feel? In other words, instead of thinking about what God does, we never think, well, how does God feel? How does God feel when he does the things that he does? What we do is we have a tendency to think about God as being completely unhuman. As if he doesn't have emotions. As if he doesn't have. And we know the Bible says that he wept, but we just kind of overlook. We don't, we, we honestly, be honest. This is what most of us have believed all our lives. We believe that he wept. That he's really not crying because the reason we cry, he's crying to teach us something about crying. He's crying for a purpose. It's not really, he's not really brokenhearted because how can he be brokenhearted? Because he knows everything about the whole thing and he causes. So it can't be real tears. That's what we think. But do you ever think about what if you what if you reread the New Testament and all you thought about was you went through the gospels and the only thing you thought about is how does Jesus feel here? How does Jesus feel here? How does Jesus feel here? Every time Jesus encounters somebody or does something or something happens or whatever, how how does that make him feel? Stop thinking about you and think about him. How does he feel about that? Think about it. So here's what we know. We know, first of all, that Jesus' heart is filled with compassion for us. We know that. There's no question. For God so loved the world. We, I mean, he's, he, he's clearly filled with compassion because he's weeping. But here's what else we should know. We, we should know that, that he, he must do certain things to teach, train, discipline, and strengthen us in faith and character. You see, <clears throat> Jesus comes to earth to accomplish the Father's will. Not His will, the Father's will. Now, here's what we know about the Father's will. The Father's will is the right way. And it's the hard way. It's not the easy way. In fact, it's the hardest way. Everything about the Father's will was the right way. And the same thing that was true for Jesus is true for me and you. The right way is the hard way. And so Jesus committed his life to doing, not, listen, it's not just the cross that was the hard thing. Everything Jesus did, he did the hard way. Every single thing. Why? Because he wanted to? No. Because it was the Father's will. Because that's what God called him to do. Why? Because Well, how would you feel if the one who our lives are supposed to be modeled after had everything easy until the end, then he did a hard thing? Well, that's not how my life goes. That's not how your life goes. In other words, he modeled what we experienced, that everything, all of it along the way, is hard. And every day we have to make decisions, do the right thing. And every day we fail, and sometimes we don't. And when we do, it's harder, and there's always a shortcut, and there's always an easy way. And Jesus 
was faced with the same thing. And he didn't want to do it the hard way, but he did it the hard way because that's the Father's will. See, the Father's will was to train us and discipline us and strengthen us in faith and character. See, the things that he must do leave us wondering or worrying or waiting in desperation. It's not what he wants to do. It's what he must do because that's the mandate of the Father. All you have to do is read John 17 and you can see everything Jesus lays out, the whole purpose for which he's been sent as he's talking to the Father and all the things he's telling the Father that he's accomplished and done is all according to the Father's will. And it's all the things that he must do. And none of it is the easy way. None of it. It's all the hard way. And so he leaves us wondering, worrying, waiting, in desperation, but not because he wants to, because he has to. And when he does this, it doesn't just hurt us. It hurts him. Probably more than it hurts us. You see, we move towards God in these spurts, these these bursts, these moments of, of what? Crisis and pain and desperation. That's when we move to God. That's when, we, when everything's good, we, we're good. But when it's not good, we move towards God. That's what we do. And there's a divider that we can't see over. And we don't know. And we don't understand. And we're... We're frustrated. And God wants us to choose His way. He wants us to embrace His way. But here's the thing. He wants us to embrace His way before we know what His way is. Because if He reveals what His way is in advance then he's manipulating us, isn't he? Then he's violating our will to choose, isn't he? Yes, he is. See, what God is interested in is when we obey and embrace and trust in his plan and purpose when we can't see over the divider. And the reason he doesn't bend the divider down and say, hey, look here and see, see, look. The reason he doesn't tell Mary and Martha, the reason he tells the disciples is why? Because he could, which is showing you that he wants to tell Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he can't because if he does, he violates the principle and he'll crush their ability to have free will. See, nothing good comes of it if he tells Mary and Martha that. He loves the Father's will and purpose more than doing what people want him to do, even when he loves them and it breaks his heart. See, this is why so many times, see, when we, when we fall, God doesn't break our fall. We, we sing stupid songs. Golly, we sing stupid songs. I mean, we don't hear, thank God, but you do listening to Caleb, trust me, it's stupid. Stupid. 
We want God to just break our He's, He doesn't, you know what He does? He lets you fall. You know what God does? He lets you break. Because broken is right. Not because He wants you to break, but because He wants you to have what God wants you to have, which is a broken and contrite spirit. So He doesn't put a pad out, He lets you fall. But you know what? When you break, it breaks his heart. He cries when he sees us break. But then when we choose to trust him, when we can't see over the wall, he rejoices. And that's why he keeps letting us fall. It's because he's doing what's best for us, but it's hard. That's the problem with our parenting. What if we parented that way? Dear God. Man, it seems so cruel. But you know what? The American parent today thinks that you exist to protect your kids from pain. You are you doing the exact opposite of what you should do. The opposite. And you're raising moronic hellion Pharisees if you do that who are going to torture you when they get older that's what's going to happen that is such a big mistake let your kids cry let them cry they're made in the image of God You know why they cry? Think of all the things you try to prevent your kids from doing. That's the image of God. Let them cry. That's natural. You should cry. I should cry. They should cry. God made us that way. The other thing I told you when we were in the pit of hell and your heart was broken and we were sitting around and crying together is I said the worst thing you can do After I told you to focus on what you know and ignore what you don't know. The second thing I said is, let it out. The biggest mistake you can make is thinking, well, you know, crying is a showing weakness or crying is the wrong. Or What are you talking about? The most natural thing for you to do is express your emotion. That's why you have it. So here's the takeaways and we're done. If we want to experience the fullness of the life God makes available to us through the Holy Spirit, we must be desperate for it. This is just a principle. There is, there's no shortcut. There's no other way. If you want it, now look, you may not want it, and that's between you and God. He'll fix that. That's not my problem. That's your problem. He'll fix it. Trust me. But if you want it, understand, there's only one way to get there. Only one way. Desperation. It's the only way. you got to be desperate for it. If you're not desperate for it, you'll never have it. And I'm just saying, how many kids today are growing up that are desperate for God? Because they have every stinking thing they could ever dream of. They're not desperate for God. They just... Act like they like God because they want you to think that they're they're good. So you'll keep buying them stuff and babying them and making everything easy. 
Man, you're glad you came to church tonight. You got to be desperate for it, right? But here's the thing. God orchestrates our spiritual development through the ministry of desperation. Now, now we're going to back up. Don't worry. How does he do this? So we're desperate. So think about this. We can't make ourselves hungry on our own. That's the next blank. You can't make yourself hungry. So God orchestrates this whole thing through desperation. But I can't make myself desperate. I do not have the capacity in me as a human being to make myself desperate for what God wants me to have. And in order for me to have it, I have to be desperate. You understand the problem? So then above that, there's no use in God offering a feast for which we have no appetite. Why would God offer a feast for which we have no appetite? So what does God have to do? What did he say in Deuteronomy 8? He led them into the wilderness, caused them to be hungry, desperate, then provided manna. The reason that all of this is going on, the reason that he doesn't send word to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is because he wants them to experience the fullness of the life that's available to them in the Lord. And in order for them to do that, they have to be desperate. And so as hard as it is, he has to create that he intentionally allows them to go into a moment of desperation so much so that it makes him cry, but he doesn't deviate from the plan. You see? You, because he knows that me and you, he loves us and he knows you and me, we cannot force ourselves to be desperate. We can't make ourselves to be desperate. We have no capacity to do that. That's why you should be so glad. What does that tell us about God? What could I possibly say that could convey to you more powerfully than what we've talked about tonight to convince you how much God loves you? That he would do what breaks his heart, but he would do it anyway. To create desperation in you because you can't do it in yourself. But it's the only way for you to get to where you need to be. No matter how hard I try, I can never be like that. See, I, I can't be like that. That's just another level. That's how God is. We can't make ourselves hungry. So, look, everybody, here, here's your desperation verse that everybody loves. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and Turn from their wicked ways. I will hear, they will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what everybody loves, that, which is a phenomenal promise. But no one ever quotes the verse right before it. How did we get there? God said, when I, when I shut up heaven and there's no more rain, or command the locusts to devour all the land, or send pestilence among my people, 
Does God want you to be desperate? Yes, he does, more than you can even ever imagine. But how are you going to get there? You can't. So because he loves you and me so much, you know what he's going to do? He's going to allow us to get desperate. He's going he's to he's allow situations where we can't see over the wall. And he's given us an opportunity. What are we going to do? Are we going to constantly talk about, well, what's going on the other side of the wall? Well, what's he doing? Well, how's it going to work? Well, when's it going to happen? We're constantly trying to build a ladder to look over the wall. We've constantly got our ear up to it to listen to see what we can hear. We're constantly trying to... Why? If we're confident that our good, loving, sovereign, heavenly Father is busy on the other side of the wall, why don't we just get down on our knees and thank Him? And be grateful. And go, yeah, there's a thousand things I don't understand. But that's okay. Because there's a couple I do. And one of them is, I know who's on the other side of that wall. And I know he's busy. See, I know he loves me. And I know he's good. So you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go in my prayer closet. And I don't have any compulsion in my heart to tell God what he ought to be doing or how he ought to do it. Or I just want to go in there and go, God, thank you. Because you know how much this hurts me right now. And you know how much I, 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 my heart is broken. And how much I wish that what's happening wasn't happening. But I'm so grateful that you're busy on the other side of that wall. Please have your perfect way in me. Help me to trust you in the midst of this storm. Help me to trust you. God, I, I don't want to put conditions on you, Lord. If whatever it is that I fear the most, if it happens in this situation, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to love you. And if you have your perfect way in me, I'm going to love you more. See how backwards we get? Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you that Jesus wept. That his, his spirit was.